Numbers 31, as you're doing that, you know, we like to make it look all bright and shiny and perfectly clean for Easter Sunday, and so Brother Paul is going to be doing shampooing our rugs tonight. It would be great if just a few guys kind of hung out uh, after the service and uh, help move the chairs either to the sides or store some of them away so that he can have full access to uh, make the carpet all wonderful. So with that said, I'll ask the Lord for his blessing tonight. Heavenly Father, we know that we can't understand a thing about your word unless your Holy Spirit open up the eyes of our understanding. For these truths are spiritually discerned, meaning we, we need a spiritual translator to help us. Lord, so from your spirit to our spirit, from deep calling to deep, may you make these truths known to our hearts and Give us the courage, Lord, to act on the truth that we hear and be doers of the word. Amen. Well, war, as it has been said, is hell. Not theologically accurate. Hell is even a worse reality, but an apt description nonetheless. For in this earthly life, war really is the worst of the worst, really as low as we can go, and that's why we call it hell. We can scarce allow ourselves to think of the untold suffering and the monstrous atrocities, which all are the fruit of uh, just a three-little-letter word, war. Yet with that said, you know, we realize sometimes it's the last resort. It's a sad reality. I was thinking today about World War II. Nazi Germany began its evil march based on this crazy premise that the Germans were a master race, superhuman, and that they, they were on a sacred mission to bring in a 1,000-year reign and rule uh, devoted to their causes. They, uh, so the National Socialist Party and the Third Reich uh, prepared for this conquest, first of Europe and then the world. And you know on those history channels you can see footage of them marching, that frenzied, stiff, crazy, uh, get out of my way or I'm going to kill you, a march that sends shivers down your spine because war is just uh, a monstrosity. Now, bombs had to be deployed, missiles fired, and soldiers had to fight to their death to stop that from happening. And the world was saved, but at a terrible cost. And unfortunately, it included the suffering of men and women and children and babies that had nothing to do with the political or national struggle there. In that regard, war, I think, is not a respecter of persons, and I'm going to make a jump here. Neither is God's wrath in many ways a respecter of persons. There is one person the wrath of God respects and hops over. And that is, of course, those who have been covered, metaphorically speaking, with the blood of Christ. The payment's been made. The wrath of God has been already suffered upon somebody. Uh, 
Jesus was the sponge for every drop and ounce of the wrath and anger and justice of God. And so that said, without that, the wrath of God abides on us, not on those who know him as dearly loved children, of course. And so with that introduction, you've probably gathered, and with my remarks at the uh, intermission there, that something intense from chapter 31 is coming your way. And I will say this, perhaps the most challenging of all scriptures tonight in the entire Bible, bar none. This is first place struggle among Christians and unbelievers alike. God's wrath is going to fall upon the evil Midianites, and it's not just the bad boy warriors who are going to be destroyed. It's men, women, and children. Now, God-ordered destruction is a stumbling block for many Christians who might be new to the faith or not very mature or well-versed in the scriptures. Or it also can be a stumbling block to unbelievers who are looking for excuses to harden their hearts and serve themselves instead of the Lord. You know, I've told you many times about my friend who said, I've got a problem with the Old Testament, and you remember what I told him. Well, the Old Testament has a problem with you. <laughs> Jeremiah <laughs> Jeremiah 17.9 says, you're sick. And your heart is desperately wicked, and you are deceived. And how dare you question the Old Testament because you're questioning God. You cannot have a problem with the morality of the Old Testament scriptures and not have a problem with the Old Testament God. There's no way you can do that. Yes, you can wrestle with them. Yes, you can be sad and grieved and perplexed. But, you know, in all of Job's sufferings, he never sinned, as it is written in the Bible, by opening his mouth and accusing God. That's one thing to struggle and be confused and like, oh, Lord, help me with this. Don't have a problem with that. And when we read the text, yeah, our hearts are grieved. But we know our God is morally perfect. We know him to be loving and true and righteous. And perhaps the one part that we don't get and is the problem is that we don't understand his holiness. We do not understand holiness. It's a word that means separate from. He is so distinct from who we are as compromised sinners that we don't get the passion for morality and purity, and how his absolute love and moral purity must annihilate all evil. We don't see it because we're a little desensitized by evil since we live in it every day, in the outside and on the inside. Perhaps a better understanding of the holiness of God will help us to, to understand why chapter 31 and most of the book of Revelation has to happen against sin, against evil, against the, the evil one himself. So with that said, my heart tonight for you is, is to help you over the hurdle of reading tough Old Testament passages and just getting that one eyebrow that goes up. I want to just bring that eyebrow down, all right? So without actually touching your forehead, <laughs> physically. <laughs> 
Somebody really liked that over there. <laughs> All right. So with that said, you ready? Fasten your seatbelt. Verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Take vengeance on the Midianites for the Israelites. After that, you will be gathered to your people. So last task, Moses, before you die. So Moses said to the people, Arm some of your men to go to war against the Midianites and to carry out the Lord's vengeance upon them. Send into battle a thousand men from each of the tribes of Israel. So 12,000 men armed for battle and a 1,000 from each tribe were supplied from the clans of Israel. Moses sent them into battle, a 1,000 from each tribe, along with Phinehas, you remember him, son of Eleazar, the priest, who took with him the articles from the sanctuary and the trumpets for signaling. They fought against Midian, and the Lord commanded Moses and killed every man as the Lord commanded Moses and killed every man. Among their victims were Evi, Rechem, Zer, Hur, and Reba, the five kings of Midian. They also killed Balaam, son of Beor, with the sword. The Israelites captured the Midianite women and children and took all the Midianite herds, flocks, and goods as plunder. They burned all the towns where the Midianites had settled, as well as all their camps. They took all the plunder and spoils, including the people and animals, and brought the captive spoils and plunder to Moses and Eleazar the priest, and the Israelite assembly at the camp on the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho. Moses, Eleazar the priest, and all the leaders of the community went to meet them outside the camp. This is the hard part. Moses was angry with the officers of the army, the commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds, who returned from battle. Have you allowed all the women to live? He asked them. They were the ones who followed Balaam's advice and were the means of turning the Israelites away from the Lord in what happened at Peor, so that a plague struck the Lord's people. Now kill all the boys and kill every woman who has slept with a man. But save for yourself, for yourselves, every girl who has never slept with a man. Well, that should be enough for tonight to think about and reflect upon. Why don't we just settle in on the first 18 verses? All right. Number one, if you're taking notes, Roman numeral number one, divine justice, the wrath of God. So this mission is to carry out the Lord's vengeance upon the Midianites. It will be Moses' last task, as I mentioned. He will soon die there on Mount Nebo. Uh, Present-day Jordan is where that mountain is located, overlooking the Promised Land. Moses is not exempt from uh, God's uh, divine laws that we reap what we sow, even Moses. And Moses disobeyed the Lord and brought dishonor to his name in front of the people. And the Lord said, for this, Moses, you will not enter the promised land. So this is it for him. He's about ready to die. Moreover, God's promise in these verses is being kept to the Midianites, who five chapters ago opposed the Lord and came against God's people and got in the way of the Lord trying to plant his people in Israel. 
And always keep in mind, when God is coming out like a bear robbed of his cubs, um, God needs to plant Israel in Israel to plant a messianic nation to bring the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Without Israel being in the place, a protected place where Israel can thrive for hundreds of years so that on that day in the fullness of time, God would bring forth himself incarnated through a human womb. Without Israel being in its place, you're not going to have a savior. Without a savior, we're all lost and going to hell. So for Satan using the armies of Midian to try to stop him, from bringing Israel into the land so that Jesus, the Christ, can be born through them. Well, watch out. That is why fire falls from heaven, number one, because God is trying to save the world, and Satan is trying to hinder that. Uh, We are not wrestling here with flesh and blood, even in the Old Testament. And so... God is going to keep his promise. They are in the way. They are defying God and his word in full knowledge of who Yahweh is. And Genesis 12 says, Those who curse Israel, God will curse. And the time had come for God to punish Midian. Here's a paraphrase of the opening verses. First, we'll consider 1 through 6. My paraphrase here. It's time, Moses. Take vengeance on the Midianites for how they nearly destroyed you all. You must carry out the Lord's vengeance, not yours, on them. Each tribe sends a thousand soldiers. So with Phineas, the priest, leading the way with the items from the sanctuary and with the trumpets to direct the march, they went out into war. Now notice verse 3, first of all. It is the Lord's vengeance, not Israel's. Uh, If Israel gets accused of genocide or whatever, just uh, correct the person. This This idea didn't start with Israel. They didn't get together and say, hey, let's take vengeance on these folks. For whenever they do say that, it's trouble and it's condemned. We are never, and God's people never, are to take matters in their own hands. So this is the Lord's vengeance, and as always in the scriptures, It is said as a positive thing. Righteousness and truth, justice, are the foundations of his throne. His holiness and love demand that vengeance and justice be meted out against evil and evildoers. Now, the problem that we have in this, of course, is that we believe that vengeance is inconsistent with God's love. However, biblical love has a moral component. 1 Corinthians 13, love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. Love and hating evil go together. You cannot love God, you can't love God and and cling to evil. You can't say, I love the Lord, and then do something evil consistently and embrace it consistently because The Bible says you would be lying because there's a moral component to love. And love's first duty is to annihilate evil, to prevent it from happening. That's the most loving thing to do, is not to tolerate evil at all. Now, Sunday uh, 
I was at the door, like I like to do. I like to sneak out that door. I'm not leaving early. There's not a car waiting for me there, <laughs> like at other churches I've been to. But anyway, that said, I sneak around, and I go to the door, and I hang out there. And I like to meet people, and you know how I do. And um, a Sunday school kid comes over. I've never met her before. And she just says, Pastor Ross, does God love Satan? And I looked at her and said, absolutely not. That was the easy one. He doesn't love Satan. Love doesn't rejoice in evil. Love, love, God has a love for the world enough to send Christ to die for it, to make it a way, to make a way for them to live. But God says, the evildoer, my soul hates a true evildoer. One who rejects that way that God has made in love. And only God really knows who they really are because they're often disguised as, as sheep. And they end up being some of the greatest Christians who have ever lived. So we really don't even know who the true evildoers are that God souls loathes. We don't know. That's why Jesus tells us, you love everybody. You love your enemies because you, you haven't a clue who anybody is. Christians act like non-Christians, and non-Christians act like Christians. How am I supposed to know? They're planted next to each other. The weeds look like weed, and the wheat looks like weeds. And he says, well, pull up the weeds. He says, you can't. You can't figure that out. The angels are going to have to do that. Nobody knows in a congregation really who is who. God does. But the loving thing is not to tolerate evil. And so, moving on, that whole point was to say that God can be perfectly loving and perfectly just to judge evil in those who do evil. Now, the problem, of course, is when we take matters into our own hands and say, you know, that this is vengeance in our name. Well, the Lord says in Romans 19, never take your own revenge. We are forbidden from vengeance. Mentally, emotionally, verbally, the Christian is absolutely prohibited from any kind of revenge ever. He says, that's my job. You pray, you love, you keep your heart sweet and clear from uh, poisonous thoughts and bitterness. You leave it to me. I'm way more creative. I've got it all figured out. I will pay back. That's my job. I do that for a living. Stop it already. James 1.20 says, For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. So the church, of course, has no mandate for holy war because our enemy is spiritual, not flesh and blood. Warren Wiersbe's great quote, The sword of the spirit is the only sword we use to advance the cause of Christ. Now, moving on, the Midianites have done some significant damage, and the reason today in the chapter is payback is back, you recall, Numbers 25, the king of Moab sees them coming. He's heard all about them. He's heard the gospel. He calls Yahweh Yahweh. He doesn't call him some god. He calls him by his covenant name. He's heard. 
We've heard how the, the waters dried up and they're coming over like locusts and nobody can stand in their way. But he wants to, instead of repent, he wants to hire some uh, soothsayer, just a sorcerer, Balaam, to put a spell on them and to curse them. Balaam was a famous sorcerer like Harry Potter. And... He was condemned, as Harry Potter would be condemned, because all sorcerers in the Bible are condemned, all of them. Moving on, but I just got a little thing about that. I I just never have gotten that, that uh, he's a sorcerer. That's what he is. Okay, Harry. I got a problem with Harry, all right? Okay. Please give me a second chance if you love him. But come and talk to me later after. And Good, thank you. All right. No chanting. I, I see it starting over there. All right. So Balaam comes out and he says, look, I'll pay you whatever you want. To curse these people. You got, you're in touch with the devil, man. Come on. Show Yahweh his place. And so he says, okay, I'm about to do it. Uh, Israel will be blessed forever. They will inherit paradise. They are, they, nobody can stop them. And he's like, what's happening? And so it goes on and on like that for three times. You remember, we were in those chapters a while ago. And so at the end, he says, look, nothing's going to work against them. But listen, I got some advice. And this is the, the advice that set them up for this kind of payback. He said, as he's leaving, or so we thought he was leaving, he apparently was still there. Um, he said, throw a big party, invite the shrine prostitutes, dress them up, put some perfume on them, sacrifice some bulls, put some steak on the barbecue, get these women, turn up the music, and pull the soldier boys in. They'll worship your God and will disconnect them from their power source. That's how you'll do it. And they did it. And, they, and it worked. And thousands upon thousands upon thousands of Israelites died as God's justice and wrath fell on his own people. He's an equal opportunity chastiser. And so that's what happened until the courage of Phineas, you remember, he took the spear, the two uh, royal prince and princess came in to the sanctuary and they did their sexual immorality thing and Phineas took a spear and speared them. And the plague stopped. God said, thank you, finally somebody can stand up to this. And so you see Phineas is leading the charge here because he was the one who led the charge five chapters ago. All right? So now, Midian really had it coming, folks. Number one, they stood aggressively in the way of Israel. We've talked about that. Uh, Number two, they've resisted God for 400 years. The cup of the Amorites is now full. God's been working. He said, listen, Abraham, you're going to go away for 400 years. I got to deal with these Amorites, these Canaanites, these Midianites. I'm going to give them 400 years. I'm going to work with them. But when that cup is full, you'll come back and I'll overturn it. He gave them 400 years. And anybody who wanted out could get out. Rahab, she's a Canaanite. 
She becomes an ancestress of the, the Lord, as I've mentioned many times. And so they have it coming in full knowledge of the Lord. Uh, they resist him, and they incite Israel to sin. They set uh, Israel up. Now, in Luke 17, Jesus says, you know what? There's a real warm place in hell for those people who cause others to sin. He said, temptations are sure to come, but wow, man, how bad will it be for the person through whom they come? It would be better for him to die a horrifying death, excuse me, than than for what's coming for causing a little one And the little one there is a child of God, just a child, an insignificant one, a weak person to sin. Jesus said, better better choose a horrifying way to die than what's coming for you if you don't repent and you trip people up. Well, they tripped his people up. And now, for the many reasons I have listed for you, his wrath is about to fall. So Roman numeral number two Now, judgment falls. Now, let's consider verses 7 through 12. Here's a paraphrase. Now, Israel goes into battle as commanded. The men of Midian are killed, including five kings that ruled there. Balaam was still hanging out. He never went home. I guess they paid him pretty handsomely for that last bit of advice that worked. And he's hanging out there. And he was killed as well. The city is leveled. Everything is destroyed. The women and children are captured, as is really one of the rules of warfare given in Deuteronomy. Normal courses leave the kids and the women alone. It's only in this case that that's going to be reversed. And so they take the whole thing back. The city's plunder of goods, the animals, the livestock, the people... And back to Moses. Now, judgment falls. That's your Roman numeral number two. Uh, The Hebrew there says, Israel, go and avenge and avenging. That's very serious. That's very serious. And, And we see how serious it is. Now, a couple surprising names, as I mentioned before, uh, appear in the list. In the list of kings... There's somebody you should remember, Zer. He is the father of the princess pagan who was in the tent. Her name was Kazai. And her father is, is one of those kings. And so he perishes. Um, she was really known as a, a, a royal Jezebel, kind of using her royalty and her fame to corrupt people. And then Balaam's the other other surprise name. And there it's like, gee whiz, we thought he left, like I said, but he, he, he stayed around. Now, Balaam is a sad, pathetic guy because the Lord revealed to him, and in his oracles, he said, oh, I get it. I get it. He's their God, and, and they're his people, and he spouted out some beautiful words of truth, and he confesses with his own mouth, I get it. I know this Yahweh. And he still wants the shekel instead of the Savior. And he's going to be put to the sword because of that. You know, the sting for people like Balaam 
is how many opportunities they had in life to avert disaster. He had so many chances, as will anybody who ends up on this side of the great white throne. So many chances. In hell, I believe, the sting will be how easy it would have been to avoid that eternal perishing. It would have been, it's a heartbeat. It's just saying, I'm sorry, I'm wrong. But that's not hard. He said, all you got to do is turn around. And they will live with memory of every moment of every day that they could have just avoided that whole scene that's damned forever and ever and ever. The smoke of their torment, I'm quoting, the smoke of their torment rises day and night forever and ever. Now, true, that alone, hell in itself, not only the wrath of God falling on this village, it's hard for us. But when I look at the cross and see that is the Son of God taking the wrath of God so that nobody would ever go there, then I kind of understand the passion of God that no man ever go to that place and perish. Still, there are hard consequences for sure and hard, um, I should say, ideas. All right, so the land is cleared. Everything's carried off. And the, later, the tribe of Reuben is going to inherit that land. Continuing on, my last point, verses 13 through 18. And this point for Roman numeral number three, war is hell. And when it's waged against God, it's utter and total destruction. Here's the paraphrase. The soldiers return with the spoils, and Moses notices that the very women responsible for Israel's devastating demise, the shrine prostitutes who had seduced the men, had been spared. The ones who committed the crimes must die, he said. The girls who did not may live. Young girls can be spared. The young boys cannot. Now think about it. The only group that offered no threat to Israel becoming Israel and bringing forth a Messiah to save the world are the young girls. The prostitutes, and they're not just prostitutes, they're shrine prostitutes. They're priestesses of a cult religion. And so they would ensnare the men again or have the chance of that. And the boys grow up to avenge their fathers and to revert the place back to the Canaanite ways that, that were there before. That was in Israel. And we were at some site, and there was a gate, and there were Palestinian boys who were throwing rocks. And everybody was just sitting, drinking lemonade under a little, their parents were drinking lemonade under a, a little umbrella. And the boys were just little toddler things. It was almost cute until you realized what was happening. And our guide said, just give them a little more testosterone in a few more years, and they will be our killers. They were boys. This is the idea here. Now, mercy, my first thought was, they go to him. If they would have been left, they would have perished, 99% of them. 
To become a Midianite man is to disavow God and perish. But if you're under the age of accountability, when you die, you get a free pass. You're in. Mercy. Send those boys to me before the awful potentiality happen. Given, given this situation that you guys have handed me, let me show you the best thing that I can do. The young girls can be assimilated and, and find Yahweh as their Lord. And the very thing that Midian used, the women, to break the back of Israel. Now God says the wives who didn't commit the crime and the young girls, the daughters, will now become wives of, of Israelites and grow up to know Yahweh. Very poetic justice there as well. And about the boys, you know, another illustration. Um, just a sad, sad, sad thing. But um, I was watching Animal Planet, I guess Fatal Attractions, and a guy just loves wildcats, raising them in Iowa somewhere in the Middle West. Maybe not Iowa. It might have been like something more rural <laughs> than the cornfields. <laughs> you know, there, there was a lion in the cornfield. No, but... Uh, He's raising the cats, and there was a cub that bit down really bad, and he had to go to the hospital. And they said, that cub needs to be put down. And he said, no, it's just a cub. It's learning. It's growing. And that cub became a lion and killed him. Fatal attractions. That's the unfortunate truth behind what God's saying, that the sad reality of what had to happen. Now, I think the best way to look at this that helps me personally, the best in passages like this, is that this incident is a prophetic picture of something in the New Testament. Just like um, Israel's deliverance from Egypt and slavery is a picture of God's people being delivered from Satan and sin. Just as Israel's journey through the Red Sea is a picture of our baptism through water, just as Israel is eating the bread from heaven, the manna, is a picture of us having the Lord's Supper and eating of Jesus' broken body. You know, folks, the Old Testament, these incidents are painting these pictures. What is this picture? This picture is of Armageddon, the final judgment. The Midianites are only getting early what the rest of mankind is going to get one day. The whole book of Revelation. So this is a picture, a type of the end of the world where really, folks, to tell you the truth, Jesus said it. He said, if those days weren't short, the tribulation will be like nothing ever before. And Revelation points that out quite clearly. He said, if those days weren't shortened, there'd be not one person who could survive it. In that day when the blood of the blood will be splattered on the chest high on the horses and Armageddon and a third of the sun and the moon and the stars fall and the mountains into the sea and all hell breaks loose here. There are kids here. There are boys 
There are girls. There are babies. And Jesus said, whoa, how sad for little women, for women who have little babies who are nursing moms. He pointed that out. His heart is broken. But when judgment falls, when judgment fell, and back in the day of Noah, do you not think there were boys there? There were boys and girls and babies. When Sodom, when the wrath of God fell on Sodom, do you think they were all just all perverted men? And no women who weren't a part of things? Of course there were women that, were, that weren't as corrupt as the men, and they had kids. There's nothing really that different about this passage, honestly. Because when the wrath of God falls, when mom and dad do something really stupid and the consequences of righteousness comes upon them, those kids bear that suffering. And when the judge says, "Uh, I'm sorry, sir, you're going to have to go to jail for five years. And now that kid has no father. Are you going to say, judge, how could you do such a thing? You're taking the dad away from the kid. It's your fault. That's what we do when we look at these kind of passages and say, look at the suffering. It's your fault, the judge. And he says, excuse me, it's not my fault. Number one, it's their fault. Number two, look what I did on the cross so that you all could escape that. I am the Lord, I take delight in nobody's demise. He, he, he's not delighted when the wicked perish. He says that over and over again. I take no delight in it. I'd rather somebody turn from their wicked ways and, and live. That's the heart of the Lord. He says, I will that none perish, but all come to know the truth and be saved. That's the heart of God. But he says, not for one second do I tolerate Unrepented evil, ultimately, when the cup is full, it's turned over. Because I'm righteous and holy, but I made a way. I made a way so that cup doesn't fall on your head. (laughs) And to change your own heart so that you're not in bondage to those very principles. Because in the heart of every human being is the Midianite gene. We all have it. Jesus said from the From the abundance of the heart, the lips speak, and in your heart is the problem. Murder, theft, adultery, sexual immorality. He says, from your heart. So we don't look at the bad boy Midianites and say, oh, wow. We look at the Midianites and say, wow, sin is terrible. The devil is bad. It's a dreadful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. These are the lessons I take away. And and the biggest one of all was, How did I escape? How did I escape? I didn't want anything to do with him. You know my story. I tell it all the time. I walk into a bar with not the foggiest idea of God or wanting God. Never been to church a day in my life, 19 years old, wanting to just get high and drunk and be immoral. And I walk out of that bar after having a vision, a total born-again Christian without any human agency at all. Escaping this. I am so motivated to throw myself before the living God and, and 
and serve him all the days of my life and, and, and be filled with such joy, not anguish or sadness or depression looking at this, but the love of God who would reach down into a bar with a guy who's running the opposite direction, say, no, 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 you belong to me. Tweak, boom, and out I come, and I, I'm talking to God on the sidewalk. Get in the car, go home to my born-again Christian father, and start confessing all our sins. Me and my brother both saved in the same prayer. Six months later, we're in Bible college. Why? God, I almost went to hell. But I escaped by the grace of God. Now life is sweet, and even my hardships, I have joy in my hardships just because I know I'm going to heaven. I miss the bad place. Folks, we need to, to stay in this chapter a little bit because it helps us with the fear of the Lord. It helps us with the, the love and compassion for other people who don't know him. This awaits them. This is the only future for people who don't have the covering, the cost, the payment plan. That's the only thing left for them. This is the payment. Complete and utter annihilation. And I don't mean that in the Jehovah's Witness way, meaning that you just uh, are absorbed into nothingness and cease to exist, because that's a word they use. The smoke of their torment rises day and night forever and ever. That means they weren't annihilated. They've been destroyed eternally in what is called the second death. And I escaped. And I did nothing to earn it. He just said, I want that one. The one in the bar, Lord? The angels are saying, excuse us? Are you sure? And I'll take his brother too. What? How about your story? Come on. Each one of you could come up here and wow us. We'd be on the floor listening to your stories. They're better than that story. And how? Why? You? Come on. You got a lot to be happy and thankful for tonight. So bounce out of this chapter into the courts of praise. Your God loves you enough to single you out and say, this one belongs to me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, for your grace, we gladly lay down our lives to follow you. There but the grace of God go we. We could have been standing on the wrong side of that great white throne. And instead now we'll be crowned with the crown of life. And filled with joy forevermore and peace at the, and feasting at the king's table and honored and protected and given a, a name and glory, a new name and getting to reign and rule with, with Christ in a kingdom that lasts forever. Verses chapter 31 and Revelation 1 through 22. God, thank you. Let us never forget how blessed we are. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand. Closing song. Father God, make good use of passages like these in our hearts to 
bring the fear of the Lord, which is really the beginning of everything, beginning of wisdom and understanding and all blessing, is to reverence you. Teach us of the holiness of God and, the, and Father God, the depravity of sin and the terribleness of evil and the holiness of God our Father. And you, your word to us, be holy, for I am holy. And without holiness, no man will see the Lord. And help us, Lord, to just be encouraged by these truths. And to be faithful to you all the days of our lives. And even more so as we see the day approaching nearer and nearer. We thank you. We commit this truth that we're learning tonight to you. Guard it, Father, above us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, God bless you guys. A few of you guys.